Welcome to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on K-Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. Like a broken record, magically repaired. In Chinatown, Los Angeles, set your dial to 1630 AM or listen to the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. The show is hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. There you can find out more about our guests as you're listening to the show. Our guests today are Kim Calder and Amanda Ackerman. Kim Calder studies contemporary literature and critical theory at the University of Southern California, Los Angeles, and holds an MFA in poetry from the University of Maryland, College Park. Her work has most recently appeared in the literary journal Unsaid and at Joyland Poetry, and is forthcoming in Jacket 2. Amanda Ackerman is the author of four chapbooks, Sin is the Celebration, co-author House Press, The Season Cemented, Hex Press, I Fell in Love with a Monster Truck from Insert Press, The Parrot Series, and Short Stones from Dancing Girl Press. She is co-publisher and co-editor of the press Eohibis Labs. She also writes collaboratively as part of the projects Sam or Samantha Yams and Unfo. Her book, The Book of Feral Flora, is forthcoming from Leifig Press. Kim Calder and Amanda Ackerman, welcome to The People. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for joining Hello. us. Hello. We are here. Amanda, you uh, you have the book um, on Insert Blanc Press, the I fell in love with the monster truck, and we've—I've I've known your work for quite a while, and we've engaged in the writing community for quite a while. And you also have this uh, book forthcoming from Leafy Press. I'm excited to see that book, um, and so yeah, we're very excited to have you here. Thanks. Yeah, it's and I think that we today we're gonna hand it over to Kim uh, to talk, and you guys have like uh, some things you wanted to talk about. Yeah, and we're gonna recede into the background. Yes. Hey, Amanda, how are you? Hi, Kim. <laughs> nice to be here with you. <laughs> I'm looking at a really nice beagle on the wall behind you. That's good. Um, well, we are here in part <laughs> to talk about animals and um, the more than human, the it's other than human world. It's not a real beagle. World. It's a picture. It's true. It's a, it's a lovely mis- drawing by Patrick That could Marcoux. be a, a mistranslation on the radio. I know, it's true. Yeah. But we, we're also here to talk about vibrant matter, so it's possible that we could talk about the drawing of the beagle in the same way. I was lucky enough to hear you read at a series called QED that uh, Le Fig Press did this year, and um, you read a piece that brought up some really interesting questions about what collaborative writing means, um, and you were thinking about that in a really different way than we're used to. So I was hoping that you would read that for us, um, and then we could talk about it. Absolutely. So um, the name of this essay is called... I did not write this by myself, and I also want to add that it was edited by Harold Abramowitz. So there were different levels of collaboration with the text, um, which will become more apparent as I as I read. But there were also levels of collaboration just in the production of the text itself, because I consider him as being a part of the process. One, many writers say they cannot be alone enough when they write. Kafka said he didn't want anyone sitting next to him. Kafka, who wanted to reveal himself to himself in excess, could only surrender if no one else was watching. Not even the dark cloak of night provided enough silence. He wanted to be locked in a spacious cellar. He fantasized that occasionally someone would provide trays of food so he wouldn't even have to pause from writing to cook. He could eat, cloistered, and then begin the submersion again. I love Kafka. 
One of his narrators was an ape. One of his speaking subjects was an unintelligibly shaped spool of thread. But I do not like this model of writing. Kafka undermines what is real and undermines what we think makes up the world, so I'm also not convinced that this, in fact, was his model. 2. In Middlemarch, the word alone appears 77 times, as in, you can, you can let nothing alone, or when the two girls were in the drawing room alone, or I will have so much to think of when I am alone, or he waited until she was alone, or he wished to be quite alone this evening. 3. Other writers speak about writing with their organs, fluids. Harriet Beecher Stowe said she wrote with her heart's blood. Some writers say writing makes them vomit. I cannot decide whether collaborating with one's organs when writing is a form of writing alone. Adsorption, a term credited to Deleuze, describes the part-whole relationship. A coalition is formed, yet each element is an actant. The body is undoubtedly a nonlinear assemblage of heterogeneous parts. However, I think some organs and liquids are more creative and talkative than others. Some organs probably prefer silence. 4. Then certain writers state they do not write alone because when writing, they are bundled to other beings. Robert Louis Stevenson said he made money off of stories he didn't even write. He writes about the little people who manage man's internal theater. Together, he and the little people write and sell stories. The little people give him aesthetic dreams with good market potential. They are not the blood bone nightmares that a child who eats toasted cheese will have when he goes to sleep. Stevenson calls the little people brownies. They give him stories better than the ones he could fashion himself. They do one half of the work for him when he is asleep. And in all human likelihood, they do the rest of the work for him when he is awake. Who are they then? And who is the dreamer? He calls the brownies his collaborators, literally. But he holds the pen. He gets the praise. He can pay the butcher in the bank. I love Robert Louis Stevenson. He does not claim ownership over particular aggregates of words, links writing and dreaming, and identifies non-human entities as collaborators. But this presentation could be construed as voluntary or involuntary possession. The male-authored Gothic novel tends to be more supernatural than the female. At the end of a female Gothic, the mysteries are often given rational explanations, and the heroine is proven to be sane, despite her paranoia. In the male Gothic, the hero often ends up insane or criminal, because the feminine-coded powers of nature and the supernatural have overtaken and corrupted him. 5. Here's another writer speaking about how we do not write alone. I feel sorry for authors who do not reach out and engage in the communities of authors that are out there, especially because it is such a delightful group to be a part of. At the conferences, in writing groups, and online, it's more than establishing a platform to sell a book. It's about having people love you when the writing is hard. It's about people who celebrate with you for even what may seem like the smallest of victories because they get you. They understand. Six. Another person who did not write alone was Maria Sabina. I love Maria Sabina. A shaman and visionary, Maria Sabina lived out her life in the Oaxacan mountain village, I'm going to totally mispronounce this, of Huatla de Jimenez, and yet her words, always sung or spoken, have carried far and wide, seeking cures through language with the help of psilocybe mushrooms said to be the source of language itself. She was, as Henry Munn describes her, 
quote, a genius who emerges from a communal, religious, therapeutic folk poetry, unquote. She may also have been, in the words of the Mexican poet Homero, I'm going to mispronounce his name too, Aridihi, or Aridihis, I totally apologize for mispronouncing his name, quote, the greatest visionary poet in 20th century Latin America, unquote. In Mazatec, the mushroom is called Little One, who springs forth. In 1955, banker R. Gordon Wasser visited the Mazatec community and was introduced to the psilocybe mushroom. He thought he was floating in the divine numina. He said he found God. Maria Sabina called the mushrooms saint children. She was also a saint. Psilocybe mushrooms will often cure the sick by making them vomit. The patients vomit because the mushrooms want them to. Maria Sabina said... Only the foreigners took the mushrooms to find God for a mystical experience. With the mushrooms, she wrote poems in her native language. Here is a segment translated into English. Because I can swim in the immense. Because I can swim in all forms. Because I am the launch woman. Because I am the sacred opossum. Because I am the Lord opossum. This was not a form of possession. The language was curative. The idea that poetic collaborations connect across species boundaries is not new. We would now probably classify her poems as biopoesis. 7. For uncalculated years, the knowledge of this mushroom had been carefully guarded by the Mazatec. Maria Sabina, however, opened up this knowledge to a community beyond her people, to foreigners. She did so because the mushrooms asked her to. They said it was time. She would be shunned and resented for sharing this knowledge, but the mushrooms had asked for a wider berth. It is their very essence to expand, communicate, and link incongruous points. Many of the foreigners would exploit and abuse the mushrooms, and many would not. We are reminded empathy is the starting place, not the end point. 8. Mushrooms spring from nets of mycelia under the earth. Mycelium webs recall the shapes of other communicative matrices. The World Wide Web, the neural webbing of the brain, dark matter. Mirror neurons, the cells some say are responsible for learning empathy and learning language, look like mycelia webs. The mushrooms are the fruit of this fungal web. The largest organism in the world is a fungus. In Oregon's Blue Mountain, there is a mycelium web that is 2,284 acres wide. I'm probably going to mispronounce this too. It is identified as armor. Armillaria ostoii. All fungi in, is it fungi or fungi? I should know that. Tomato, tomato. I'm going to say fungi. All fungi in the Armillaria genus are known as honey mushrooms. In many ways, we still don't understand what mushrooms are. They tend to resist classification. However, innovative research suggests their regenerative and detoxifying properties will help remove pollution, restore soil, and assist with radiation exposure. Since Fukushima, the mycelia have helped us more than we understand. Maria Sabina's stigmatization within her community is especially tragic given that the mycelia, to whom she was devoted, are the quintessential teachers of community. They function rhizomatically, connecting one point to any other point. Nine, instinctively, I do believe that the psilocybin mushrooms are a source of language. Ten, 
When people came to Maria Sabina for a healing, the first question she would ask them was, what is your dream? One, whenever I go to a reading, I wish I could ask the same question of every reader before they begin. I want to know what kind of world this person wants. Two, who are we protesting when we protest? Whom, human or God? Three, I am human, so it seems that no matter what I do or say, it will be emblematic of human nature and what it means to be human. I was walking through a park near my home when I became a wolf. I spent most of the night roaming the park, having fully transformed into a wolf. My breath, hearing, and sense of smell were different, but my heart was the same. It longed for company. When morning came, I started to turn back into my usual human shape, but then I got stuck in the middle of the metamorphosis. I was half human, half wolf. My mother fed me lots of corn because it was supposed to be a good remedy for making people fully human. She made sure I was sitting at the breakfast table or in front of the television with a napkin in my lap and a small dish of salt. This went on for about 10 days, and I ate at least 80 years of corn until my ears started to take on their human shape again, like flat little kinnies, slash megaphones, slash dishes, slash antennae. Four, the human ear is not especially nice looking. Five, in another story, the hybrid creature is euthanized because it cannot be named nor classified. Notice that up until now, I have purposely avoided the term hybridity. It suggests one pure element intermingling with another pure element, or modes and degrees of resistance and domination, as if that is the only way cultures or beings interact with each other. Six, here are others who do not write alone. Was she beautiful or was she not beautiful? Seven, some people will do anything for reproductive success. Eight, often when we talk about community and kinship, we use the same set of concepts and framing devices. Here is a partial catalog. We speak of making ourselves in the world good. Classifications, if everyone is my brother, then I have no brothers. Totem and taboo, transgression, conflict, violence, entitlement, colonization, eugenics, genocide. Boundaries as solid or porous, economies of exchange. The failures of democracy, consensus and disagreement, being heard or unheard, participation and non-participation. Those who are and are not deserving of care. Whether we are kin with machines and other organisms, inclusion and exclusion, leadership, shame, banishment, exile, friendship, family, coterie, similarity and difference, marginalization, sex, reproduction, marriage, genetics, inheritance, love, endurance and dissolution, religion and politics, utopias, extinction and ecosystems, individualism and interrelationship, community as liberal fantasy. All of these ideas hover around the idea of the patriarchal family even when patriarchal ideology is contested and other models are sought, this language does not find meaningful distance from patriarchal and patrilineal, matrilineal ways of conceiving community, kin, tribe, and aesthetic practice. They still present a basic anxiety about relationship, survival, genealogy, and influence. 
even if this anxiety wishes to destroy the misbegotten ideology. It's as if we have been swept clean of other potentials and other frames, or we believe we can only begin once we're swept clean. It is interesting. Blood is still the most common bodily fluid with whom we recognize kin. Nine, yet we also stalk nature. Ten, our appetite for seeing nature, seeing ourselves in nature, and having nature see us is boundless. In biopoesis, perhaps we've already found an epistemological aesthetic classification for recognizing that when we write, we are not alone since we are biocultural entities who are writing as and with nature. Discourse about nature is largely misleading because it centers around modes of human perception. Am I reading nature right, interpreting it right, or discussions linger around moral obligations, are we helping or hurting, celebrating or mourning? We debate whether nature is precious or disposable. We acknowledge nature's beauty and amorality, invoking the word pharmacon, which means both poison and cure, attributes given to mushrooms. We say nature is an entity seeking its own biological reproduction, or we talk about plants, animals, and stones as if they symbolize something. I am talking about collaboration with non-human entities, and so I am talking about none of this. The way to begin is simple. We introduce ourselves to them. What of non-human speaking subjects? Do they collapse when we bring up the symbolic order, the Oedipal subject, the idea of presence and absence of the monstrous? You might introduce yourself to a creature, but they have every right to refuse to speak back. Two, I'm talking about actual relationships with other creative actants and speaking subjects. These interactions can strip the ways we discuss the genealogy and community of a text, the speaking subject, and how the text has come into existence. There is this possibility that these kinds of creative communities suggest modes of relating in which anxieties about interconnectedness and distance might not even take a foothold. Three, Deleuze and Guattari, they're often cited for their discussion of rhizomatic versus arboreal systems. They claim that unlike trees, rhizomes are decentralized reproductive systems constantly creating webs and networks of communication and connection. Rhizomes can connect one point to any other point and connect signed and non-signed states. I love this idea, but it makes me wonder if they've ever talked to trees or rhizomatic plants. I wonder if they were writing alone. Some rhizomes include irises, ginger, turmeric, and quaking aspen, a type of tree. From Deleuze and Guattari's definition, mycelia would be a mode of rhizomatic system. Literally, mycelia live in fastidious symbiosis and coevolution with trees. If a tree is lacking a certain nutrient, it will pulse the message to the mycelia, who will then search the world for this nutrient and, once located, bring it back to the tree. This nutrient may travel thousands of miles. A forest of ponderosa pines is also the very essence of a group mind, a shared body, a communal existence, even though their roots may not touch. Most rhizomes are not self-pollinating. They depend on the flight and suction and ecstasy of other creatures, such as bees. Four, is it ridiculously easy to have an aesthetic practice that loosens the binds of human exceptionalism? 
5. When I wrote a series of pieces with irises, there were certain somatic exercises involved. I smelled a small bottle of orris root and put the sun on my skin, and while I was writing, some irises bloomed at different intervals, and I sat with them, and I sat with them where they didn't bloom. I ingested bottles of their essence, and sometimes I sat nowhere near them, but we still labored together. Even if I were to lock myself in a cellar, we could still communicate. 6. Irises reach. Irises happen to like writing. Not all plants do. In the same way that not all humans like writing. I also assume that some plants will want nothing to do with me and American English. We are not entitled to write anything we want. 7. We are horrified by using natural models and even wonder whether the modern definition of nature was constructed by fascism in order to justify and naturalize its regimes. But this venom needs its anti-venom. Bees have much to say about community and their words should not be stolen from us. Like a ponderosa forest, bees share a hive mind. If someone in the beekeeper's family has died, the bees need to be told. They need to be given a piece of wedding cake if there is a marriage. Bees can grow old quickly and then grow young again. Sterile bees can lay eggs in times of crisis, and the senile can rejuvenate glands that have atrophied. 8. Political activism takes many peculiar and unpredictable forms. Thank you, Amanda. I love that piece. Um, political activism does take many unpredictable forms. That's true. Um, so I want to ask you first about the idea that it's ridiculously easy to have an aesthetic practice that decenters human exceptionalism. Um, when you say that, do you mean uh, all you need to do is introduce yourself on some level? I kind of do mean that. Um, and I say that with a couple ideas in mind. I think, first of all, again, I think when that idea is opened up, people tend to get very entitled. Mm. So you don't want to just assume that you can go out and that everything's going to want to respond to you or want to talk to you. So you still want to make sure that it's not an illusory kind of idea. So it's real. I mean, it's just like if you say hi to someone on the street, they may want to talk to you. They may not want to talk to you. But I think, yeah, it is, it is that easy. I think a lot of times we get caught up in ideas of perception and distance and the idea that can I know this thing or can I know this being or is this being even a sentient creature so I think as long as we stay caught up in that sort of um, framework of phenomenology and distance then yeah we're going to be in that position forever and ever like am I actually talking to this creature is this an illusion what is this but it is, if you can just kind of let that go and just introduce yourself, you'll find that these beings are ones we cohab, you know, we share the world with them, but it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> like, sometimes I just drive around Los Angeles and I see different plants or different creatures or different birds, and it's just so amazing that we get to have a life where we get to share atmosphere with these creatures. And I just, it doesn't make any sense to me why someone would think anything else. That's really interesting. And so in, in saying so, you're really departing from the Western philosophical tradition. And I feel like there's a lot of that happening in theory as well. And this, I mean, this essay is kind of like a lyric essay, but it's theory. Um, mm -hmm. I know we'll hear some of your creative work later, um, or creative work. It's all creative work, but yeah, um, poetry. I, I wanted to share a quote from Derrida. Um, he gave a series of lectures in 1997, and then um, this section was published in 2003. Um, and here he's kind of 
really troubling Western philosophical discourse by asking, well, not only can, you know, can, do we have the right to refuse the so-called animal, which is a category that he thinks is ridiculous in the first mm -hmm. place? Like, how could one category subsume such, an, um, such a massive right. amount of different forms of life? Right. Um, how could a shrimp be categorized as a rhinoceros as a... Yeah, it's, it's, it's an asinine kind right. of categorization in his mind. So um, what I also think is interesting is that he, he calls into question wh what gives us what gives us the right to think we have such a rigorous hold over any kind of conceptual framework that we're secure in it. So um, I'm going to share this quote. It is not just a matter of asking whether one has the right to refuse the animal such and such a power. And this is kind of a catalog of the things that's been refused over the years in philosophy, right? Speech, reason, experience of death, mourning, culture, institutions, techniques, clothing, lying, pretense of pretense, so pretending to pretend, covering of tracks, gift, laughter, crying, respect, etc. The list is necessarily without limit. And the most powerful philosophical tradition in which we live has refused the quote-unquote animal, all of that. It also means asking whether what calls itself human has the right to rigorously attribute to man, which means therefore to attribute to himself what he refuses the animal, and whether he can ever possess the pure, rigorous, indivisible concept as such of that attribution. So the idea that, you know, we, we speak about things like a theory of the subject as though we're entirely sure um, about the way in which we, we perceive um, or the way in which we can perceive others. So I wonder um, to what extent you do feel there is a kind of philosophical intervention that has to occur in addition to the aesthetic practice, or do you think it can all just be left, left behind? It's a really good question. So I came into my own practice, I wouldn't say necessarily through philosophy or through theory, even though that's certainly something I have a background in, but I think... Although I should erase that somewhat because I think in like the 90s when I was a teenager and early 20s, I was obsessed with ecofeminism. So I think that was really a, a huge influence. But I feel like ultimately I haven't come to this place through the articulations that are existing right now and seeing, we're seeing more of an academic thought, especially around ideas like posthumanism. Um, so that wasn't necessarily where I sprang from with that. It was just that now I'm seeing more articulations of a practice that I already believe strongly in. Yeah. But I think that it's sort of a double-edged sword because I think on the one hand, it's wonderful that we're finding these articulations um, um, more and more and that we're building a vocabulary instead of concepts around this. The danger is always with this kind of practice that, again, it's becoming a definition that happens in two spheres. So for example, it ends up being like someone will define something and then you have the new usual academic aspect of like refining the definition or challenging the definition or finding critiques for it. And so it becomes that ongoing way of academic discourse of constantly trying to shoot something down in some sense before it's allowed to exist. And I really like Elizabeth Gross's idea, I'm going to probably misparaphrase her, but she really likes the idea of allowing ideas simply to exist and allow to be and allow to come into existence before we end up back into that discourse of critique and refinement and, um, and this picking at. Because I think that kind of idea ne doesn't necessarily suit this particular strand of thinking. Um, hmm. 
But another aspect is, like, I love Derrida's work on the animal. I love that he challenges the category of the animal. But on the other hand, what if you actually sat down and had a discourse, real discourse with an animal? What if they said, I like classification? <laughs> or what if they said, I'm, you know, what if the shrimp was like, I'm fine being classified <laughs> as a rhinoceros? <laughs> So I think, again, it's nice to have these articulations, but we sometimes get ahead of ourselves because we're still actually not having a real conversation. We're not listening. We're not uh, listening. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I know you wanted to, speaking of listening, play some plant music. So we would love to hear that. I did. I brought um, a clip from a place in Ireland called Derry Nagita, and it's a friend of mine as well as a mentor who is working with this technology that I'm really fascinated by and hoping to employ myself, where you hook, I, don't, I haven't actually seen it hands-on, so I don't know how it works just yet, but you hook the plant up to, I think maybe through a system of electrodes, to a synthesizer. Now, the synthesizer itself is pretty kind of new-agey sounding. Um, my friend Adam Overton suggested that, that the plant be set up to... Um, through some sort of synth program where it's just like making meow sounds or something or to do something different <laughs> other than that sort of pretty, pretty soft, new agey sound. But it's a concert in which a woman is playing violin alongside a plant. And it's fascinating because the plant is making music with the violin and then it becomes sort of indecipherable who's leading the orchestration. So I think it's pretty beautiful. So they're going to play a clip. Well, let's give it a listen. Welcome back to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. If you're in Chinatown, Los Angeles, you can listen to The People by setting your dial to 1630 AM or listen to the live stream at keichungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. The show is hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page to find out more about the show. Our guests today are Kim Calder and Amanda Ackerman. So we just heard a wonderful plant music piece that Amanda brought for us. And I wanted to bring a little bit of what we're calling um, in philosophy these days. I'm just going to push for the, the kind of conversation between poetry and philosophy, mm -hmm. um, vital materialism or political ecology. And so this is from Jane Bennett's book, Vibrant Matter. Which is a great book. It's a good book, I think. Um, so her project, as she kind of conceives of it, is I will try to give voice to a vitality intrinsic to materiality. 
in the process absolving matter from its long history of attachment to automatism or mechanism. One moral of the story is that we are also non-human and that things too are vital players in the world. The hope is that the story will enhance receptivity to the impersonal life that surrounds and infuses us, will generate a, a more subtle awareness of the complicated web of dissonant connections between bodies, and will enable, enable wiser interventions into that ecology. Um, and she sees raising the status of the materiality that we are composed of as not only a way to think um, about more responsible interventions into like the world around us, but also um, as a way of setting up a safety net, as she calls it, for humans who are now routinely made to suffer because they do not conform to a particular Euro-American, bourgeois, theocentric, or other model of personhood. The ethical aim becomes to distribute value more generously to bodies as such. And so I think what really interests me about this idea of both of listening and of exploring tentatively, but also of trying to kind of advance an ethics based around that is that it does seem to, in just in terms of policy and in terms of the actual safety of other beings, um, elevating matter, um, understanding ourselves as non-human as much as we are what's been called human seems to be a really important ethical project. Does that, do you feel like that fits with your work at it all? It does. Um, I mean, as I sort of said before, I, I think I have, uh, I think I have a convoluted sense of what's normal, obviously, <laughs> um, in such a way that it's formed such a, a baseline level of, what's the word I want? It forms such a baseline level of the way I move through the world that it doesn't even occur to me sometimes why anyone would not behave in an ethical manner towards other creatures and other non-human creatures. I just, I don't understand it. Um, I certainly can trace it back through different historical and philosophical <laughs> and other cognitive tendencies. I mean, I certainly can see why people do that, but it just, on some level, it just doesn't make sense. And so I, again, yeah, absolutely, I would agree with that. I think there is so much about us that is non-human, um, I mean, we have these borrowed bodies for one thing, right? Um, and I don't know that language is necessarily human. I love the idea that mushrooms created language, whether it's true, whether it can be empirically proven, who knows? It's a vulnerable idea, but I love the idea that language itself probably has contributors to it through its whole evolutionary process that often are not necessarily human as well. So here we are thinking we're speaking this very human speech, but who knows? Who knows who, what kind of organisms have contributed to it and to its becoming? Yeah, and Derrida, one of, I mean, one of the things he talks about a lot in the lectures on animals is the idea that, and as you said, does, does this whole, does the idea of animal language collapse once the symbolic order is introduced? Um, but in fact, um, there's no reason, like language is a prosthetic for humans as far right. as Derrida is con right. concerned, right? So it's to claim language as a stable kind of set of signifiers that we have control of in some exceptional way seems to go against like any of the advancements right. that we've made right. recently. So I know you brought a piece for us uh, that is more listening and more kind of sharing of listening um, to other beings. I did, and so this particular project is stemming from um, a series of pieces called People Staring at Menus. 
And it really started just because I would be obsessed whenever I was walking on a sidewalk or in a restaurant or sitting in a restaurant of just the act of watching someone look at a menu and their facial expressions. I don't know why I got obsessed with it, but I did. So, um, so this is stemming from that. And each piece is sort of a different, I guess you would say different voice about coming from uh, an underwater city. And part of the process with this is, I don't want to say too much, but part of the process with this is it's definitely connected to ocean. And also I've become obsessed with, with the pictorial symbols from ancient cultures of how they um, represented the ocean. So I guess you could say there's a visual poetics with it as well. So I'm just going to read a bit of menu number three, and I'm going to read a bit of menu number two. So this is people staring at menus, menu number two. Oh, my dear ones, the snow in the underwater city, the snow formed from seawater, the way it fell on the coral beds. We shoveled the water. You should have seen it because I cannot describe it. Even if I were to tell you the story, it would not matter because we live when all stories compete with each other for dominance and attention. We live when all jobs are as tedious and repetitious as all other jobs, despite differences in earnings and position. They lured us out of the underwater city with promises of food and work, powerful incentives. I did not want to leave, but you are in trouble if you cannot function in the present day, even if you are asked to give up too much. Blood, culture, genealogy, beliefs. Snow made of seawater, falling on a shifting mosaic of corals and sea plants. In the underwater city, we played instruments resembling harps and clapper sticks. I promised I would not describe this. Now I am very conscious of myself as a person and see myself as that principally. We began to divide our time between land and sea. We stopped using our bodies the way they were meant. The seabeds were erupting crags, the plumes of see-through jellyfish. No, I promised I wouldn't. There was always the story of how we came to reside in this particular place. Of course we split. It was like scraping cells out of one's own body. It became impossible to get to the beach to fish. After a day of regulated, repetitive work, we would order takeout and go down to the river to eat it. I did not mind being hungry. Actually, I kind of liked it. Feuding, trespassing, poaching, warring. There were new settlements. I never divorced her. She simply disappeared. We wouldn't have qualified for a divorce anyways with these new laws. To justify a divorce, a woman needed to be barren or an adulterer, and a man had to be abusive or fail to support his family. I became a craftsman. I joined a guild. Nature is cruel. We can't be too romantic about nature. But I did believe there was a moral order to the universe. If there are two conflicting stories, you have to find the balance between them. Better to survive in the world. Better to survive even in these new emerging economies. Better to learn how to speak the language so we can tell you. I became a food writer. I like to preview a menu in advance. I didn't like surprises. We lived in a time when we could look anything up. Just the other day, I needed to know what samphire is. It's a salty tasting garnish, usually growing alongside the British coast. This is a story that has multiplied thousands of times over the past century. More billowing proclamations, the sun went down, and on this particular evening, I decided to walk home from work instead of taking the rail. Had I become ugly? 
Had it been too long since anyone told me I wasn't? Was that it for me? And then I'll read um, two short sections from menu number three. I miss the underwater city. The ocean swaddled and rocked you. The water always talking to you and telling you who you are outside of time. I miss it. I really do. There was the primordial soup, the primordial coolant, algae growing in chains like ferns, the steam and oil from rotting carcasses of whales and sharks. The water was clean. Can you imagine? The stillness. And what people hung on the walls. Hair, bodies tangled, water bodies, unkempt tissues of hair. You can smell blood underwater and the juices of different fruits. We lived differently. We didn't even have a word for nuclear family. Picture it like a watery prairie or picture it like a floating landscape dotted with tall blue molten huts and picture the huts and rings like the way liquid scatters when someone skips a pebble into a pool. We had get-togethers, lighting firecrackers, visitors waiting at the door at sunset with a hat in their hand. But a friend told me it's a terrible paradox. As long as we consider the question of how we should be living, then we are not living. Human conversations are for the most part pretty stupid, and it is easy to be unconventional. I've blocked the memory of the day we were forced to leave, but it felt like being swallowed up by the mouth of a big metropolis. We went out there to live and just stayed. Once you were there, you couldn't move out. Civil administrators, a lot of things were taken away. They can't tell me the exact year I was born. In the underwater city, no one was outspoken, or we all were. I miss it. I figured out that conversation was a way I could sidestep the voice inside my head. I suppose you could say I like to keep things simple. So, sterility, racism, exploitation, sexism, exhaustion, kleptocracy, homophobia, weapons, poverty, illness, prisons, old age, bad food, poor soil... I had been taught to navigate them with social grace and self-assurance, like one problem among many other problems. Solitary confinement becomes one problem among many other problems. Sexism becomes one problem among many other problems. But I gave up the anxiety that stems from the feeling you can't convince others they're wrong. But I gave up the anxiety that stems from the feeling you can't convince others they're cruel. You can't steer an unreachable, wretched, wayward mind. I gave up illusory fear and despair. The surprises I enjoy now are the result of my having low expectations, like the sushi at the airport wasn't terrible. But I like to be prepared. I like having things to look forward to. I like to go to dinner with friends or when I'm dating someone. I can look at the menu for a lot longer than most people, even though it disrupts the conversation at multiple intervals. It's not socially acceptable behavior, but it nearly is. Thank you for that, Amanda. That's a beautiful, those are beautiful pieces. Um, so are you, you're conceiving of each menu as coming from a different voice that you're hearing? I think so. That seems to be what's happening so far. Or if not necessarily a voice in terms of a subject, at least what I'm thinking of it is in terms of language aggregates mm. um, and what particular words might share a similar language field or immediate connection to others other, or what words might share an immediate connection to others or get grouped in as others. Um, so I think I'm thinking about it, yeah, in terms of maybe language categories as opposed to, like, a particular subject. Okay, so you feel like there's an organizing force that's sort of just bringing different words together in yeah. some sense. Yeah, What is your process like for trying to sort of hear that or approach that space? Um, I think the process has, has been a little bit different for each piece. I use loads of appropriation in, in my work in different ways. Um, 
in some of the pieces, I would, I guess I would say there's a lot of appropriation. And, and then in some of the pieces, I guess I would say I wrote them, whatever that means. Um, I kind of tend to blur the lines, <laughs> but, um, so for example, one piece I read the autobiography of, or an autobiographical, um, piece of writing on Leonora Carrington. And so then I thought about how a subjectivity gets biographied, if that's a word. <laughs> I feel like I keep mispronouncing everything. Biographied works. I think um, that's a word. I'm going to make up the word biographied. Um, <laughs> and that a subjectivity then gets tr- sort of translated into becoming a language ag- aggregate. So I would read that and then consider it, consider it as a language field and then create a text, say, from that. Um, well, also off, also incorporating somatic aspects or oceanic aspects or visual symbols. So it's, it's sort of a multi-tiered process. That's interesting. And so in a sense, you are, we talk a lot about like the blurring between a subject and an object or like decentering the human, all of these kinds of things. Um, but in this sense, it's almost like something different is happening. Um, what do you imagine like this force that's aggregating language as in, in some sense? That's a really good question. I don't know if I have an immediate answer for it. Um, I think one of the things that I'm particularly interested in with the menu project is the Darwinian aspects to language. And so the idea that not only do words compete for meaning, but that narratives compete for attention or that people war with each other through their narrative positions. Um, Also to look at how the narratives create us and then we create the narratives back or the words create us and then we create the words back. So I think, yeah, so with this particular piece, I'm really kind of interested in in the Darwinian aspects to language and how language creates us and we create it back. That I think that ties in really interestingly to this body of philosophy we've been talking about as well um, in the sense that this, I mean, I see this as kind of a revisionary project, um, right, as going back and kind of saying, well, this is, this this particular narrative was developed about what constitutes the human, right? And that has helped us understand what constitutes a subject, which has right. had unbelievable political consequences for animals and for, for people, whatever those two things even mean. And so to go back and kind of ask the question, what have these categories produced and how and, like, what, what other ways can we conceptualize um, conceptualize what living beings are in and, some sense. Yeah, and I think, again, the stakes are really, really high. Um, I mean, for example, right now with Fukushima, I mean, if the fuel rods from Reactor 4 are exposed right now, not to sound negative or alarmist, but there's enough radiation in there to take out the Western Hemisphere. I mean, it's there's people on record who are who are experts in this field who say, you know, if the reactor four fuel rods are exposed, I'm leaving the Western Hemisphere. That's it. I'm done. And so there's real stakes to the misconception of being human. There's real stakes to cruelty. There's, a real, there's, there's real consequences when our actions aren't aligned with, with, I guess you would say, the planet and how it functions and the natural laws of the world. There's real stakes here. And... Even if you just go back to the idea of uranium as a being Mm. and the way uranium has been mined. I mean, it's been mined from places in the United States that 
um, where Native people live. It's been mined, I believe, in Australia, where Aboriginal people live. And they themselves said the uranium is not meant to be taken out of the ground. They talk to the uranium. The uranium's an entity. It's a being. And they listen, and it said it's not meant to be taken out of the ground. We took it out of the ground. We still take it out of the ground. And then we dominated it, and we split it. So there's real stakes to needing to reevaluate the human. There's real stakes to being able to listen to the organisms that we share the planet with. Yeah, we talk now about this new, like we've entered into a new era called the Anthropocene. I don't know if you know this term, but it's basically the sense that um, at this point, human beings constitute a force of what we might call nature within themselves in the sense that we are, as you say, like in the position to destroy the Mm -hmm. entire planet. So in a sense, we are like a natural disaster of some sort. Um, and which then becomes though part of the human narrative about itself that it's like a virus destroying world. So I mean, even that needs to be. <laughs> you know, How do we revise that? I want. I mean, I always kind of wonder this. How do we revise that without dissolving accountability? In some sense, because it's like I always want to decenter the human, but then sometimes that seems problematic when like you need to hold a corporation or like a group of people accountable for. You never need to stop holding accountable ever. And I think that we're seeing more and more a split between between people who want to be accountable or who are willing to be accountable and a split between, between people who really, truly don't care. They really, truly don't care. I mean, the bankers, they don't care. You know, the stuff that I'm talking about right now, they won't care. And so I think the question is not so much how to revise the human without looking at accountability, I think it's what do you do with the fact that humans are split? Mm. And what do you do with the fact that a lot of people have one very particular vision for how they think the world should be and the other people think have a very particular version for how they think the world should be? There's people who are happy with GMOs. There's people happy with the McDonald's on every corner. There's ha- people happy with the consolidation of wealth. They like it. Well, there's also, I mean, th- we have to note that the kinds of environmental degradation that we see happening around the world, it disproportionately affects um, the people that aren't maybe as happy about the McDonald's, right? So in, in the sense that we sometimes think of we have to we have to save the planet as kind of this equally distributed thing and this yeah. ridiculous kind of savior thing that is yeah. ridiculous in the first place. But the bottom line is, like, there is a group of people that are profiting off of these activities and there are groups of people that whose lives are being destroyed. And that's, I think, the issue now. It's So what do you do with a divided world? And what do you do when I think people are more or less entrenched in their vision? I think it's not a matter at this point of trying to convince the banker of a different world. I think the banker knows exactly what kind of world he or she wants. So what do we do now? And I think it's how do you exist when you know you have a particular sense of what you would like the world to be while still having one foot in the world as it is. And I think part of it is kind of, yeah, it's, taking the questions to more than just the human, because the human alone isn't going to figure it out. The human needs the input of the plants, needs the input of the oceans, it needs the input of the minerals, it needs the input of the animals, because we're not going to figure it out. So we will have these kind of other new voices contributing to our philosophical traditions and our, you know, maybe making a plant-making policy. Yeah, and even, you know, <laughs> in, in my kind of radical envisioning of it, even though, as I said, I have a skewed sense of my own normalcy, um, you know, 
co-contributing to what economic systems should look like and what legal systems should look like and what laws should and what laws should be enforced. I mean, I'm because landscapes and geologies are different. So maybe what kind of laws might make sense in terms of economies of exchange and governance, like in one region of the United States, might be completely different in another um, part of the world just because it's literally a different, it's a whole different ecosystem. The beings are different. It might be different. And I like the way you bring up um, the question of the rhizome and um, the arboreal system because that seems to me a really great intervention in terms of, well, here's this one way of networking that's been privileged, right, in the Western philosophical tradition, but, like, there's actually this conversation going on between these two systems that's not being acknowledged, and the arboreal system seems to get left out as though it's less less interesting. Right, not as, right. You know. So, again, you have, again, that double-edged sort of the wonderful thinking within the Western tradition of being able to bring its philosophical philosophies and intellect into opening up language and categorization and classification, and yet you still have the danger of the not listening. So, Indeed. Yeah. Well, we probably won't solve that problem today, but it <laughs> sounds <try>. like <laughs> we're maybe more on the way than we used to be. So I guess we're going to play one more song. Tell us about the song. So I just picked it. Well, so Matt and Ben basically asked me to bring three songs. So I partially chose these three just because I really like them. But the final song I brought, Mary Timoney, just because I'm a fan. But this whole album that this song is from, this song's called The Hourglass. I really like it because I feel like there's some real feral material in the song. But I'm also obsessed in my own work with other senses like fragrance um, and the mixing of the senses. So... To me, this song is fragrant. Like, it has a very specific smell to it. And what do you mean by feral material? Well, that's a really good question. It seems like the feral is becoming more common in terms of... Or at least it seems like there's a discussion right now, especially among female writers, um, poets, about the feral. So, very to give a very quick pat definition, um, feral, of course, means when a domesticated creature becomes wild again. Right? So there's that idea of going from domesticity into sort of loosening the chains, I guess. So I think part of what we've been talking about this whole time, I guess, has notions of the feral in it, which is sort of reclaiming that other humanness that's been domesticated out of us. So we're going to go out on this song, uh, and we'd like to thank Kim Calder and Amanda Ackerman for joining us today. And before we uh, listen to the music, just want to let you know that you've been listening to The People in Kei Chung, 1630 AM. And you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show, or go to insertblancpress.net to find out more. Kim, Amanda, thanks. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Uh...